For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, you'll hear Voices for the Cure and the story behind a Tucson-made documentary about being transgender. Plus, conversations with legendary entertainer Rita Moreno and comedian Lisa Landry and Beth Sturdit pays attention to a desert marauder who was often smelled rather than seen. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. It's a diagnosis no one wants, but an estimated 1.3 million people must face every year. Breast cancer is the most prevalent cancer in the world. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and Voices for the Cure lets those whose lives have been touched by breast cancer share stories of courage, love, and hope. Genetic testing has become a tool that can help patients weigh their individual risk for developing cancer and decide on a course of treatment. Betty Viegas will tell us about the influence that genetic testing has had on her family's life decisions as she talks with Jessica Ray, a licensed genetic counselor who also became a close friend. Well, Jessica, here we are, um, nine years almost. In, in December, it'll be nine years since you and I first interacted. It seems like yesterday, but if you remember, because I know you've seen a lot of patients since then, um, I told you my story about my family and how my mom had died at the age of 39 of um, ovarian cancer. And my sister and I were, she was 12 and I was 16 at the time. We lived our life um, thinking that we, at the age of 39 we would get ovarian cancer. And so when I reached 39 and didn't get it, I, I said, you know, yay, <laughs> you know, I've, I'm not getting it, you know, I'm okay. And then my sister, the same thing happened to her. And then lo and behold, in 2001, my sister calls me and says that she found a lump in her breast. And uh, so she went, uh, went in and, and, and had it checked out, and sure enough, she, she was diagnosed with breast cancer and uh, had a lumpectomy and radiation and chemo and um, survived it and got her a clean bill of health. And then five years later, I'm going through the same experience. Um, I got diagnosed. I felt the lump in late 2004 and diagnosed in early 2005. And, um, and we had the same exact cancer. You know, it was, it was the triple negative, and it was the same staging, same size, and and so it, we really didn't think anything other than it was a coincidence at the time, you know, but after I went through my treatment and went through the whole chemo, and, and I ended up having a, a mastectomy on the cancer side of my breast, not knowing anything more, not being told by my surgeon or my oncologist about the possibility of, of a mutation. Um, unfortunately, I didn't know about you until after the fact. And I think that was really, really important for me 
um, to tell my sister, you know, hey, you need to get tested, but you need to see a genetic counselor because I had been doing research. Mm. And, and then I realized that that was really the first step. Ideally, we would like for it to start where before you have the genetic testing, mm-hmm. you're able to get genetic counseling so that you have all the information ahead of time and you know the risks that you'll be facing should the genetic test result come back the way yours did with the deleterious mutations so that it's not as much of a shock, perhaps, mm-hmm. to all of a sudden learn that family members may face this 85% lifetime risk of developing breast cancer, that you and your sister would face a 60% lifetime risk of a second breast cancer. That's when you learn that the ovarian cancer is closely tied in with breast cancer that I think perhaps many people don't know, that Mm -hmm. different types of cancers can all be connected. You know, we like to be able to provide that information ahead of time. And that way, while we're waiting for the genetic test result, you have time to sort of process it in your mind and think about what, what will I do? For me personally, it was a no brainer. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I said, take it all off, (laughs) take it all out. (laughs) I had my ovaries removed. I had my, my other breasts removed. And, um, I realized that, um, I, I, I chose life. You know, and I was going to do anything and everything in my power to make sure that that I did everything that I could, and then the rest would be up to God, you know, because you don't know. I mean, I to this day, I still go every four months, I go get my blood work, and I go get my exam with my oncologist, just, you know, as a precaution. Mm. So Jessica, as you know, my sister Irma, had a recurrence of breast cancer in 2010, and um, it was in the other breast. She knew she was positive because she had been tested, and you had done a great job of explaining the risks to her, as you did with a lot of my other family. Thank you very much. Um, But my sister wasn't quite ready to make that move to have her breasts removed. And we all have our own our own timing, you know, and our own choices. And I understand that, but I used to get really, um, not totally upset, but yeah, upset, Mm -hmm. telling her, you know, you really need to do it. The sooner the better. And she'd say, yeah, I know, I know. I'm researching it. I'm I'm looking into it. And, you know, I know I have to do this. And and, um, she went in for a regular um, exam and um, had her MRI because she had chosen surveillance in the meantime and um, was diagnosed with another lump that turned out to be breast cancer in her other breast. A few months later, they she went back for another PET scan and they found um, something in her lung, another mass in her lung, a small, small mass. And so they treated that with more chemo. And um, then just a few months after that, um, we found out that she had some, you know, she was getting really dizzy, and we found out she had um, some brain lesions. And um, I lost my sister in January of this year, January 27th. With your family, and we've talked about this, what we learn is that each person deals with the information of cancer risk 
in their own way. And you are one of those really strong people <laughs> who seek out information and who feel empowered by it and you act on it. And, you know, that's sort of always our hope that this information will then be used to prevent further cancers. But for whatever reason, not everyone is able to process that information that is scary um, the same way. And so Irma chose her route of surveillance and then sort of had her journey with the cancer that was quite different than yours. You're still so strong. Thank you. And I dedicate this to my sister who, even though she did choose a different route, she was still a fighter. For sure. She was still a fighter and she was a survivor. And even though she's not a survivor here on Earth, I know she's a survivor still. She'll always be a survivor for she's me. She's with you still. Yep. Mm -hmm. Betty Viegas talked with her friend, genetic counselor Jessica Ray. Voices for the Cure is produced in cooperation with Susan G. Komen for the Cure, Southern Arizona. More stories are on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Anna Agostowska is a Polish-born journalist and filmmaker. Her latest project is a documentary about a person she met in Tucson named Donnie, whose story is about gender identity and living the life you want in the body you choose. Tony Paniagua has the interview, starting with the film's star, Donnie Sanciotto, explaining how the film came to be. I met Anna at Invisible Theater, which is where we were working at the time, and... Uh, she had told me that she wanted to ask me some questions about maybe making a documentary about the transgender community in Tucson. And I said, okay. And halfway into the conversation, she started telling me that the story was actually going to be about me. So um, we uh, we met through through our love of the arts. And before I knew it, she was following me around with a camera everywhere. And what did you think about that? It was one of the most fascinating experiences I've ever had. I wasn't really sure what to do. I have a background in theater and in performing, but not really in film and, and certainly not in documentaries. And uh, it was a totally different experience, um, but one that I'm very proud of. So were you ready to share your story with the world, if you will? I didn't really know that I was until right then, but yes. And uh, once I saw the final uh, cut of the film, I, I was very ecstatic with the way that it turned out. And now I'm absolutely ready to to show everyone. Okay, so why don't you give us a little bit of your background. Growing up, uh, you were born a female. I was assigned female at birth. Um, I'm from New York City originally. I moved to Tucson, and uh, when I was 13 years old, I started identifying as a lesbian because I knew that I was attracted to women. And that felt right for a time, but it never felt incredibly correct. And yet it was the early 90s. I didn't know much about what transgender was. I didn't even know that it really existed. Um, and as I got older, I started to realize that I identified less as a woman and more as a man. And I did some pretty serious self-denial for a long time about that because it was something that, you know, was very unnew and scary to me. And then when I hit about 28, I started to meet people who were transgender in the community and, you know, actually get to know people and find out more about it. And I also performed as a drag king, which I think definitely helped me come to terms with my authentic self. And uh, when I was 31, so three years ago, I began transitioning and got on hormone therapy. 
So drag king is a woman who dresses as a man. Drag queen. Yep. The, the opposite of a drag queen. I know there's been a lot of talk about this topic because of Caitlyn Jenner earlier this year. Why were you interested in this particular story or type of story? Uh, I was interested in this story because um, Caitlyn Jenner has all the money she she can possibly spend for, for example, reassignment surgeries. But people like Donnie, unfortunately, and in Donnie's case, Donnie has Medicaid insurance, unfortunately doesn't, you know, they don't have the option to uh, get the surgery done. Um, so we hope this film will challenge a few Arizona laws. We hope to open some eyes. We hope to um, help people like Donnie to basically live the life they deserve in a body they desire. Transitioning is different for everyone. Um, some people want to have uh, surgery on top and surgery on the bottom. It's different for each individual. But yeah, if you're looking at the the full uh, surgeries, you're, you could buy a Lexus with the amount of money that you'd be spending. We're talking forty, fifty thousand dollars at least. Yeah, about. All right, Anna, and then how did you go about the film? Did you have a style? Did you want to create a special mood or feeling? Yes, I wanted to create a style. I graduated from journalism, so my background is in journalism, but I wanted to go beyond that, and I wanted to um, to make a film, a documentary film. So there's a lot of symbolism. There's um, there's a lot of, uh, there's an arc. There is uh, there's certain uh, rhythm to it, and there is call to action. So I teamed up with... Um, with a recent uh, graduates uh, from the film school, and they added this beautiful visual element to the film. So in 10 minutes, we really we really tell a big story, not only about Donnie, the community, also we, we touch on um, gay marriage and this historic ruling and show that there are so many unresolved issues in transgender community. So we not only hope this message will reach um, Arizona community, but it also this, this, the film right now is competing at different festivals nationally. So that's the story. And then, Donnie, finally, you said that having assistance has been critical, people who are volunteering with your case. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I was just denied by uh, access and have to appeal it. And I'm lucky enough to have um, Ethan Rice with the uh, National Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund in New York City, and then also Legal Aid here in Arizona, helping me with that appeal. Because uh, that's something that, you know, if you don't have the means to do, you're you're kind of just left without an option. So I've been very, very lucky in that sense. Donnie will be shown Friday at 7.30 p.m. at the screening room in downtown Tucson, followed by Q&A with Anna Agostowska and Donnie Sanciotto. Rita Moreno has had the kind of career most entertainers dream about, earning Oscar, Emmy, Grammy, and Tony Awards for adventurous work in her more than seven-decade career. Next week, Rita Moreno visits Tucson to receive an even rarer award, the 2015 Loft Cinema Lofty for Artistic Achievement. I spoke with her just as she returned home from a visit to her beloved Puerto Rico. Oh, gosh, it's, it's an amazing thing. You know, not, not too many people get this kind of experience that I do, but uh, there's such love, genuine, genuine love and admiration and deep respect and people crying and hugging me and can I have a kiss, can I have a hug? I will be amazed if I don't end up with some horrible cold. You know, I couldn't say no, so many, many hugs. Well, hopefully love will be your shield. We will see. (laughs) (laughs) 
when you go to Puerto Rico, they embrace yeah. your entire career, I assume. Oh, my gosh, they embrace my toenails. <laughs> and when you're here, people always still want to talk about West Side Story. That's a movie that know, people are still talking about. That's perfectly all right with me. You know, if you were in Gone with the Wind, wouldn't everyone want to talk about that also? And I, I you know, that's it, this is the same kind of film. It, this is a landmark film. It's an iconic film. And no, I never get tired of it. And I'm proud to have been a part of it. I'm 83 now. In December, which is coming up, I'm going to be 84. And uh, in, in December, we've got the uh, Kennedy Center Awards, which are probably the pinnacle. I mean, I, uh, other than trying out for the uh, and working for the Pulitzer Prize <laughs> or, or the uh, Nobel Peace Prize, I can't think of anything else. Is there a role that you wish people asked you about half as much as they do West Side Story? Actually, I get the most amazing amount of attention for a three-part guest star that I did on, um, uh, uh, oh, God. You know the hard part of being 83? There's only one, and it sucks. I can't remember names anymore. Nouns have become my enemy. And I'm thinking, it's not CSI, it's criminal intent. Criminal intent, there it is. Okay. And I did a uh, three-part arc with uh, Vince. D'Onofrio. Uh, she is schizophrenic and she's uh, dying. And I sure as hell didn't look very good in it. It wasn't meant to. Uh, she's a dying woman. And it was a, just an absolute joy to to, uh, to perform with uh, Vince. He's a marvelous actor. We had a terrific chemistry. Anyway, but you know, those things come up and I'm always so pleased when people bring that up. You know, you expect West Side Story. Well, I was born in 1969, so I remember you from Electric Company. Oh, isn't that a great show? Was that fun for you? Ah, I loved it. That was a small taste of my conversation with Rita Moreno. You can find more on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Rita will be at the Loft Cinema October 23rd to accept her Lofty Award and to present a screening of West Side Story later that evening. Details can be found at azpm.org. Comedian Lisa Landry has spent more than a decade making audiences laugh, often at her own expense. Landry brings her deceptively deep observations about life as a Cajun Catholic-turned-Jewish single mom to Tucson next week. I asked if she feels she gets the same response that a male comic might get when she uses raunchy humor. It's not so much girl-boy comedians anymore. It's an older generation thing. It's a disconnect that the boomers have and many Gen Xers have where it's kind of intimidating to see a woman on stage being so empowered that not only is she speaking her mind to a crowd of people, but she's being funny, which was typically a guy's thing. Guys are funny. You know, the guy's a class clown. I don't think that Younger people and more evolved people, probably our age and a bit older, hold on to those beliefs. I think we're living in a situation where people are becoming more and more tolerant uh, of genders, of sexual orientations, of skin colors, or even if they're not, if you are smart about things, you don't say these ideas aloud anymore. You might think it, but if you share it, you're kind of a real back of poop, aren't you? Or, you know, 
<laughs> you're running for president on the Republican side this this uh, campaign. Yeah, it's very good. Well, when you come here to Tucson, you're going to be playing at this little club called the Flycatcher. It's a it's a real yeah. nightclub type environment, very intimate bar type setting. And I wonder if that changes the way you do your show. Uh, is do you prefer uh, doing it in say a nightclub as opposed to being on stage? This is going to sound so weird, but I grew up in New Orleans with a fake ID back before <laughs> the Patriot Act, when um, it wasn't a federal offense if you got popped with a fake ID. So, uh, and the drinking age was 18. We were the last state to raise our drinking age under threat of the federal government removing our highway money. So <laughs> we finally complied. Um, so I've been going out and hanging out in nightclubs and music venues since I was 14. So I actually feel more comfortable in a nightclub setting where everything's kind of dark and everybody's having a cocktail. And you know, oh, this is grown folks talking about stuff. Than performing on a big, bright, lit-up television studio stage or a theater. I love performing. It doesn't matter where it is. Another thing that people can find out about you if they look up your videos online or read about you is that you converted to Judaism. So I have to ask, being from the South, did you give up pork? When my rabbi converted me, she asked me if I could keep the dietary restrictions. And I told her I'm a Cajun. I cook with pork, but I'll never feed it to my in-laws, and I will never serve pork on high holy days. And uh, she was cool with it. She's like, okay. <laughs> um, but I no longer eat pork because I'm now a vegan. So oh. I, What was the impetus to change and become vegan? Uh, this might sound really weird, but I was in the middle of a meditation, and I heard, don't eat any more animals. And uh, I asked why, and I heard, clear your karma. And, you know, you start thinking about it. Like, how many times do so many of us eat a plate of beef nachos at 3 in the morning because we're drinking with our friends? We're not even that hungry. You've just taken an animal's life to feed yourself when you're not even hungry. So how is that beneficial at all? It's not like you're getting nutrients that you need. You're just being a glutton. It's like you were watching me last night. Creepy. These um, nachos are really good. The one thing that I really miss on a on a consistent basis is meat tacos. I, I love I love Mexican food, and I miss beef tacos. Coming to a big now. food city, you know, Tucson, we've got great Mexican food here. Amazing Mexican food. That's I'm a true. fan. Tucson's beautiful. Lisa Landry performs in Tucson Thursday evening at the Flycatcher. Artist and writer Beth Surdit listens to Ravens and paddles with alligators in wild and scenic places. But she also knows that true adventure can be found in your front yard. When I moved to Tucson, the neighbors warned me about some aggressive local visitors. Be careful near the mailboxes at night, they said, showing me a nearby stand of once tall prickly pear cacti with scalloped cuts clear across at about 18 inches. Don't plant flowers out front unless you want your pots scattered. And definitely no pumpkins for Halloween. So, of course, I really wanted to meet the marauders. My cat and I were sitting outside the kitchen in bright daylight, watching a Gila woodpecker making announcements as it sucked up sugar water from a hummingbird feeder. When I heard, goodbye, Javi, the tall wood fence around my yard blocks the view, but not the voices, of a young mother next door who always seems to be teaching her little girl something 
as they go to and from their car. Goodbye, Javi. I hope you find your friends, said the little girl. Then we smelled it, that earthy, rancid, wild thing odor. Cat looked at me with round blue eyes, twitched his pink nose, and took off into the house as I leapt for the gate that opens towards the voices. I opened it a crack. A musky-scented, mid-sized peccary, maybe 40 pounds, was trotting by on the other side of a wire fence. My hand was already reaching for the camera as I slid into shoes and out the front door. Javi was standing right there, all alone, about 10 feet away. Warnings trotted through my head. You have to be careful. Javelinas are dangerous. Don't mess with them. Yes, they can be aggressive if they feel threatened and have the canines and tusks to back that up. And they are wild, interesting, and cute. This one was looking at me like someone who'd neglected to put on their glasses, which is understandable. Collared peccaries of poor eyesight, fair hearing, and an excellent sense of smell. They have scent glands on their rumps that they use for marking territory and recognizing each other. But this little lagger didn't seem to smell what I saw out of the corner of my eye. Over to my left, lots of little hooves were trotting past the far side of my neighbor's truck, and they were all heading away from us. Javi ambled a few feet to the right. I'll be right back, I told the javelina, as if it could understand me. I skirted the truck, turned left around a tall fence, and stopped. About a house length away, a mother javelina was standing in the dirt driveway, nursing her two babies. The rest of the herd was just ahead of her. None of them chattered an alarm call, which they do by opening and closing their mouths, rubbing their tusks together. So I quickly took two photos and quietly walked back to my place, to Javi, who is now right in front of my door. I stopped, waited. Javi cocked his head and squinted. What you gonna do, Javi? The animal breathed out short puffs with each step as he or she moseyed past the door, stopped, moseyed enough that I could walk into my studio. As I looked out my window, Javi's scented rump was rounding the corner in the opposite direction. Goodbye, Javi. Phenology is the study of the cyclical and seasonal nature of animals and plants. National Phenology Week is in October, and Beth Surdit is leading a workshop on the art of paying attention at the Tucson Botanical Gardens on October 20th. More information is on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to the show. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. The music is by Calexico. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.